MSW Media. We are tough. You have to be tough. This place makes you tough. But it makes you tough in a good way. We're going to make it because I love New York. And I love New York because New York loves you. New York loves all of you. Black and white and brown and Asian and short and tall and gay and straight. New York loves everyone. That's why I love New York. It always has, it always will. And at the end of the day, my friends, even if it is a long day, and this is a long day, love wins, always. And it will win again through this virus. Thank you. Thank you for that, Governor Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo from New York City. He's right. It's going to be a long day, but love will win. I believe that, and I hope you believe it, too. You got to believe it. <clears throat> Thanks for tuning in to the uh, to the show. Uh, if you've been paying attention lately, you know that we're not doing things the way we have been. Nobody's doing things the way they have been. I've been telling stories on the show for the, the past few episodes because, uh, you know, I don't really can't have guests in studio, and I haven't really embrace the idea of doing it remotely yet that might happen depending on how long this goes on but for right now i'm going to continue to tell some stories and i hope uh, to give you a little bit of a distraction during when i when our long days um i've been <clears throat> telling stories a lot about my brother brian who died 10 years ago and then in the aftermath of, of that how i went to uh, went on to travel around the united states and ultimately wrote a book about it called american wino um, and I've been telling little bits and pieces from the book, stories from there, and people have reached out to me and said that they they really love it, and and I and that makes it warms my heart to know that, and uh, but that they also want me to kind of do it in a more linear fashion. So I figured, all right, what the hell? We got a few months to kill, right? So uh, let's do that, and uh, let's start off today's story uh, where the story began in Venice, California, and hopefully this will shed a little bit more light on what happened to Brian and. And how that led to me taking off around America, uh, visiting wineries and all that, and and ultimately how the book happened and how I managed to uh, screw my head back on straight after what was the most difficult period of my life. And I know we can all relate to that right now, difficult periods. So um, here we go. Here's a little bit for you. And uh, sit back, uh, have a glass of wine. That's what I'm doing right now. And uh, enjoy. So begins with a woman talking to me, and she says, When were you going to tell me you were a drug dealer? Madeline asked. What's that? I shouted over the roar of my drunken urine stream. I exited the bathroom to find her holding up a gallon Ziploc full of grayish powder. You've already gone through my drawers, I said, fake mad. I haven't had a chance to stalk you on the internet yet. 
I was looking for a condom, but uh, I've never seen a bag of heroin this big. This is heroin, right? It's not white enough to be coke. She dumped a quarter gram or so on the nightstand and wetted a fingertip to take a taste. I don't think you want to do that, I said. I'm a big girl, she replied. Yeah, but that's my brother, I said. Oh, I get it, she drawled sarcastically. Your brother's the drug dealer. Sure, I'm down. But your brother won't mind if we do just a little, right? Oh, he definitely won't give a shit. Good, she said. Then let's do some and fuck. She put a finger to one exquisite nostril and horked up the powder she just scooped with a long fingernail. This clearly wasn't her first rodeo. Part of me wanted to stop her, but Brian was there. And Brian tends to be amused by this kind of thing. She froze, confused. What do you think, I asked. He's good shit, no? What the fuck was that, she panted, livid. Like I said, it's my brother, Brian. Brian? Well, his ashes, anyway. It was done now. No way I was getting laid. So I slow-played it for Brian, who was doubled up on the floor by this point, unable to breathe. An opportunity to make him laugh like this could not be passed up. Some things are sacred. You fucking psycho! Screaming! That was fast. She was up, scanning for her purse, lurching for the bathroom. In my defense, I began, knowing it was too late. In a wet whirl of Chanel and too many cocktails, she passed me and was out my bedroom door. Holy fuck! That was unreal, Brian said, recovering from his fit. You just cost me the only girl to come on to me since Elizabeth left. I hope you're happy. Oh, tell me again about your live people problems, Brian replied. They're just so important. You know, if you weren't dead, I'd punch your dick off. If I weren't dead, he said, you never would have met her. Or Elizabeth. Ah, <sighs> people who are right are the worst. Dead people who are right deserve to be shot. My brother Brian was an artist. Not the kind that creates silk screens of soup cans or paints with his own piss. Brian was a thrill artist. This made him a lot of fun. It also made him dangerous to be around. And terrifying to love. His crowning work was his explorations into pier jumping, specifically the Venice Pier, which juts out of L.A.'s bulk into the ocean like an obese cancer patient fucking a carny girl. Two polluted bodies press close, each the other's bulwark against the coming apocalypse. It's about a 25-foot drop from the Venice Pier to the Pacific Ocean, depending on the tides. To hear Brian tell it, you're only in the air for a second. But it feels like you hang there forever with the lights on the shore, the adrenaline in your veins, the relentless hungry roar of the ocean below. You are a perfect being, suspended on an invisible string, burning with possibilities. Then you hit the cold black water and everything goes hard normal. You're wet. It's dark. The ocean is heaving you up and down. And it's a quarter mile swim back to the shore, unless you get slammed into a pylon and knocked unconscious. Brian made his first jump in 2008 after a stupid boast followed by an even dumber dare. He was instantly in love. Something about the combination of physical activity, that quarter-mile swim, with a jaunty middle finger shoved in the face of authority. The pier is covered with signs that detail all the ways you will certainly die and all the fines you will pay if you don't. Plus, once you're back on shore, it's a two-minute walk to Hinano Cafe and all of the beer. It was the perfect sport for someone who was never going to start for the 76ers, but could tell you without blinking that 76ers was 17 and a half cases of beer, and that if everyone throws in $5, we can afford Natty Light. The only time to jump off the Venice Pier is at night after it's locked down. 
The city locks the pier for good reason, so people like you and me don't go out there in the dark and jump off it and die like goddamn idiots because no one can see you because it is night. During the day, there are cops who will yell at you and lifeguards will swim out to you if you get sucked into a riptide and paddy wagons to take you to the police station afterward where you will stand soaking wet and shivering in the air conditioning as they attempt to book you without the ID you left on the pier with your shoes and wallet. So yeah, only idiots jump off the pier during the day when everyone can see them. The real dummies do it when they're invisible out there. When the pier is locked, the only way to get out to where the water is deep enough to jump into is to climb out and around the guardrail they hung over the water to stop assholes who want to jump off the pier. They never met one like Brian. He figured out that if you clamber up onto the railing, then lean your body out over the water and swing around the metal grate that's meant to stop you from jumping off the Venice Pier, you can duck your head down, get some footing on the other side, and swing under. It's a good thing that grate is there. If it weren't, any garden-variety halfwit could get out there and perish. But Brian was no garden-variety halfwit. He was an heirloom halfwit, an adventurer halfwit. The ocean may be a cruel mistress, he once told me, but sometimes that's just what you need. Maybe so, Brian. Maybe so. But I hated it. The jumping, that is. Every time he got drunk enough or riled up enough or dared by dicks enough to want to go jump off the pier, I tried to talk him out of it. Despite being a transcendent master of the art, Brian only gave four pier jump performances. One time he even figured out how to do it in almost daylight without getting caught. But I wasn't present for any of Brian's jumps, so what the fuck do I know? Okay, a week from Friday, Mr. Dan, Patricia called as she headed for the door. Patricia's from El Salvador, 54, two kids, seven grandkids. She'd been cleaning my apartment every other week for the past three years. Oh wait, Patricia, I replied. I've been meaning to tell you this. I don't need you a week from Friday. I'm moving. Okay, I come Thursday, she said, turning to leave. No, no, Patricia, I'm moving, out of the apartment. Where you move, Patricia asked. Nowhere, I said. You move to nowhere? Pretty much, yes. You can no move to nowhere, Mr. Dan, she said. You're probably right, but I'm doing it anyway, I said, handing her enough cash to cover the next month of not cleaning my place. I'm sorry, I know this is out of the blue. You're a wonderful housekeeper, and if I ever get another place in L.A., you'll be the first person I call. Who live in the apartment, she asked. No one. I'm leaving. After you. I have no idea. They need clean? I don't know that either, I said, but if you need a reference, I'd be happy to... I trailed off as she sized me up with a mixture of pity and disgust. This woman had grown kids, a green card, a husband, a paid-off house in the valley. Her shit was more together than mine had ever been. She needed a reference from me like she needed syphilis. Why are you going to nowhere? It's my best option right now, Patricia. She studied my face for a moment, and fuck me, all I wanted in that moment was for Patricia to wrap her droopy Salvadorian arms around me, squeeze me tight, and say, Oh, mijo, everything's going to be okay. Instead, I think she realized the idea of never seeing me again, apart from the missing work, was a relatively pleasant one. Okay, God bless you, Mr. Dan. You're a very special person. Have a safe journey to nowhere. And with that, she picked up her bucket of cleaning supplies and walked out the door. I flopped on the couch, bracing myself for tears. I'd been getting these racking waves out of nowhere, my face transforming into a snotty wet mess with no warning. I could feel one coming the whole time Patricia and I were talking very special person. That was what had hit me. I pulled out my phone and looked up the last text my ex, Elizabeth, had sent me. 
It said we may not be able to be together anymore, but you'll always be a very special person in my life. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm really fucking special. How else do you explain me being out of girlfriend and apartment and a cleaning lady in the same month? I braced for the familiar mixture of self-pity and mucus, slowly exhaled, then nothing. What the hell? My brain was full of sad. I tried thinking about Elizabeth, about the last time we were on this couch together fooling around. That was a mistake. Now Horny was chasing sad around my brain like a puppy toying with a frog. I imagined what would happen when Horny caught sad and fucked it to death. Now I was smiling. You're creeping me out, Brian said. What's next, laughing? Maybe, I said. I'd like to see you laughing, he continued. It's always a good sign when you're laughing out loud alone like a crazy person. Bonus points if you crack jokes to your dead brother while you're at it. Oh, real nice, I said. Look, I appreciate you talking to me and all, but why just talk when you could shout, he said. You should go shout at all the people down at the beach to let them know how crazy you are not. Just shout it over and over in your shit-cake jeans at the corner of Santa Monica and Ocean. That'll show them. Remind me again why I love you, I asked. Because I'm your brother, dickbag. Oh, yeah. Well, bro, I said, I'm having a little moment here if you didn't notice. Do you always celebrate your moments with an erection, he said? Listen, I spent the last four years of my life in that relationship, and now, and he cut me off and said, now you want to whack off to the memories. Been there. I'll give you a minute. And he split. Asshole. Whack off to the memories. As if I'd ever think of... I knew it! Brian shouted just before I finished. Screw him. Let him watch if he wants. We'd have plenty of time to talk about it on the road. You see, I'd gotten this idea in my head. I wasn't sure it was a good idea. Over a series of visits to a local wine bar in Venice, I had convinced myself and anyone with an earshot that the problem wasn't that my dead brother and living ex-girlfriend had both abandoned me. The problem was the place they abandoned me in. When you think about it, it's the simplest explanation, which, as Occam's razor tells us, means it must be true. If everything I touch hurts, the tip of my finger must be broken. The obvious solution? Chop off the finger. Over a period of weeks, I managed to convince myself that the best way to free myself of my past was to free myself of the gorgeously fucked-up bubble that is Los Angeles. In recovery, this is what's known as pulling a geographic. It bears mentioning that for people in recovery, pulling a geographic rarely works. And here is the key to understanding my brain. After hearing the people in recovery don't usually benefit from this approach, I actually had the following thought. Thank God I'm not in recovery. Reasoning skills aside, at least one part of that formulation was true. I was about as far from recovery as a human being can get while not coughing up blood. I decided that the best course of action for both me and the world was to drink my way across America. For science, of course. And to defend America. Or make fun of it. I wasn't too sure. All I knew was, whatever happened, it would involve an awful lot of wine. And I do mean awful. I've spent most of what some people charitably call a career writing about booze. It's not one of those jobs they tell you about on career day. In fact, it's not so much a job you get as a job that you get away with. In fairness to myself, I know more than the average tippler about liquor. I can tell you the manufacturing subtleties between tequila and mezcal and can separate an Isla from a Speyside with a sniff. I'm pretty deep on beer, too. And turns out I'm good at writing at bars, which helps. It's all added up to me somehow making a living for two decades, cranking out articles about what, where, when, how, and why to drink. It's been a flaming butt-ton of subtle, nuanced fun. 
But somehow, 20 years into the game, I came to a terrible realization. I knew fuck all about wine, and it had started to bother me. I mean, sure, I liked the stuff, and I knew how to fake like I knew about it, the names of the major grapes, the growing regions, some well-tuned adjectives, but when you really get into the woods with fermented grape syrup, it's devilishly complex. And over the years, instead of taking small bites and learning bit by bit, I bullshitted my way through tastings while trying to steer the conversation back to the Phillies. So I figured out a way to combine my ignorance and my sadness. I would get the hell out of L.A. and drive across this great land, drinking its precious purple bounty as I went. Because if my email inbox was to be believed, and has never steered me wrong before, just ask my good friend, the Crown Prince of Nigeria... Wine was being made in every state of the Union, including Vermont and Georgia and Nebraska and Missouri. I even got a come-on from a winery in Arkansas that featured an actual RV park on site. It doesn't get more American than that. The RV park was the final straw. I had to go drink wine with people in RV parks. I wanted to drink wine in places you would never think produced wine. I needed to know if Yankee obstinacy, Midwestern stick and Deep South Zen would allow you to produce juice that could compete with the big, mean mothers out in Napa, Sonoma, and the Willamette Valleys. Stop laughing. This is the serious part. I would conquer wine, just like the United States conquered Grenada, and cavemen conquered the dinosaurs. I was like America, loud, without pedigree, misinformed, and often drunk, but I had grit, gumption, a willful ignorance of my limitations. Hell, I was America. I would be triumphant with a capital umphant. I might come back to L.A., I might not. But to find out if I should, I needed to live in nowhere for a while, if only to prove Patricia wrong. Wherever I ended up, it would be on my terms. It was time to stop living in the shadow of dead brothers and exes and crawl, squinting into the sunlight, It was time to drink my way across America. You'll be forgiven if that sounds depressing or like I have a death wish. Most of the drinking writers do, or rather did. And don't get me wrong, I consider Charles Bukowski, Dylan Thomas, Hunter S. Thompson, and John O'Brien to all be wise, if besotted, also dead, sages lighting the road ahead. But make no mistake, this was not a tale of a man drinking himself to death. This was a tale of a man drinking himself to life. I hoped. So I set a goal. I would drive an indirect path across the country, passing through as many wine regions as possible. Along the way, I would drink as much local happy juice as I could stand, hopefully learning a few things to boot. To give myself a sort of finite end point, you don't want this sort of thing to get away from you, I added a finish line, the Pebble Beach Food and Wine Festival. This annual high-net-worth Northern California Bacchanal is where the 1% of the 1% gather every year to sip ridiculously rarefied wine and swap stories about how you can't get a good yacht crew these days. To raise the stakes a little, I called in a favor and got myself booked as a keynote speaker. If I didn't have my shit together by then, it would be glaringly, career-endingly obvious. But the way I see it, what's the point of walking a tightrope if the fall won't kill you? Support for What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn comes from Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Listen, folks, when it comes to dating, it's a jungle out there. But when you do find someone who wants to take you home, you better make sure it's not a jungle down there. That's why I use Manscaped, a revolutionary electric trimmer that makes accidents a thing of the past. Their Lawnmower 2.0 has proprietary skin-safe technology, so this trimmer won't nick or snag your nuts. 
Take my word on this. No, seriously, you don't want to Google snag your nuts. It's going to take you down a dark road. Another reason to get Manscaped is that you don't want to use the same trimmer on your face as you're using on your balls. That's just nasty. Oh, and Manscaped also has the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits. Why not use it on the smelliest part of your body? Get 20% off and free shipping with the code DRINKING at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code DRINKING. And always use the right tools for the job. Always use Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. Hey, this is Tiffany Thiessen, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's going to probably do it for today's show. I want to invite you guys to, to please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Imbiber, T-H-E-I-M-B-I-B-E-R. Please uh, send me any ideas, anything you want me to talk about during this, uh, however long this hell is going to last. Um, but I am really uh, glad you guys are, are dropping by and listening. I want to leave you with a thought. Remember a while back when, when Trump inexplicably tweeted the word Cove Thief and everyone had a good laugh? Well, COV, as we now know, is short for coronavirus, and FIFE, F-E-F-E, is the Samoan word for fear. Do you realize what this means? That's right. Trump had unprotected sex with a Samoan porn star somewhere along the line, and in the ensuing STD-induced fever dream, he saw the future. I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? Okay, I'm going to go back to watching... uh all 39, uh, 39, I guess it is, seasons of Survivor now. Take care of yourselves out there. Be safe. See you next time.